0: How many of you know that babies cry in the middle of the night? (laughs) Yeah, I literally, I don't think I knew that until I had one. Um, And so Courtney and I have a five-month-old daughter named Esther. And before we moved to Washington a couple months ago, she was sleeping awesome. Like we would talk to people who had babies and they would talk about these nights where they just wake up crying and we just didn't really experience that. We were getting like seven or eight hours a night, you know, like before we had the baby. And so nothing really changed for us. And then when we moved to Washington, something got messed up and she started getting like four hours a night. And so we started this thing called sleep training. And some of you are maybe in the middle of that. I saw some babies in the room. Uh, Some of you remember those days. Some of you are looking forward to those days. Um, And the thing with sleep training is you have to, Uh, as a parent, you have to learn to be okay with letting your baby cry without intervening. And that is a really hard thing to do. When your daughter is crying in in the middle of the night, like everything in you wants to scoop her up and just comfort her. And so we're training ourselves not to do that. And one night while we were in the middle of that, I was just thinking, At some point, I don't know what age it happens, but at some point, this is not how you comfort someone anymore. Like it would actually be terrifying if somebody just came and just scooped you up and carried you off. That would not be comforting. But don't you ever wish that as the problems get bigger that there was someone who could just scoop you up, that it was that easy to feel comforted. As we approach Isaiah chapter 40, the nation has been going through all kinds of devastation. God is declaring to them that all of these terrible things are going to happen. And as you, if you've been reading Isaiah at all, I mean, it's like really hard to get through because it's just like, whoa, after whoa, after whoa, But then as you get towards the second half of the book, the story begins to change, the, the tone begins to change, and it moves from doom and gloom to hope and comfort. And I think that might be important for people in the room today and people watching online because 2020 has been a really weird and difficult year, hasn't it? Like, the problems for you are more complicated than just you woke up and, like, you're hungry. They're more complicated than just you are not. You don't know how to put yourself back to sleep. The problems are things like loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of opportunities. The problems are things like you don't know what's going to happen with your job or you're worried about cash flow or you're worried about making payroll. The worries are things like, what's going to happen to your property? The worries are things like, what's going to happen in this relationship? Maybe you're a student and you've noticed that there's some tension with your parents and that creates a burden on you. What's going to happen here? Maybe you're in a relationship and you're not sure how things are going and it's, it's hard and it's awkward and it's, stressful. Maybe you've got health challenges. Maybe you know someone who has dealt with COVID or cancer or a number of other things. In Isaiah chapter 40, God wants to come and scoop us up so that we can be comforted. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to walk through it this morning and we're going to see two reasons for comfort. Here's the first one God is infinite. God is infinite. He's the everlasting God who made all things. He has no beginning and no end. He's perfect in all his ways. He is infinitely smart and powerful. There is no one like him. In verses 12 through 14, Isaiah asks 10 rhetorical questions to help us see how infinite our God is. Look at verse 12. Here's the first one. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? As I was reading that, I got curious, like, how much water are we talking about here? Because I can cup water in my hand. I do that every day when I brush my teeth. But how much water are we talking about? It's estimated that there are 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth. I don't even know what that means. And God can hold it in the palm, in the hollow of his hand. Who has marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? The heavens here refers to the sky, the stars, the things you see when you look up. Who's measured that with the span of his hand? Now, in our house, we just recently moved into a new house, and so we've done a lot of rearranging and trying to figure out, like, does this dresser go against this wall? And something that Courtney does uh, instead of using a tape measure is she likes to use the old arm tactic. So... It's this big. So if we move over this way, it'll fit, right? And that has never worked once. It's never worked. But God can do that on his hand with the heavens. Yeah, it's this far. Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or in a basket? Who has weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on scales? I can't always accurately measure or weigh my suitcase before I get on a plane. And God has weighed Mount Rainier. Who has directed his spirit? Who gave him counsel? I love this question. Who did he consult? God has never been presented with a situation where he thought, man, we really ought to bring in the experts for this one. Like there's no consulting firms in heaven. Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer to all these questions is there is no one else. There is no one else. God is infinite. And that means he is infinitely superior to all people who have ever lived. Look at verses six through eight. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity, every single person, all humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. Verse seven, the grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. Verse eight, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever This even includes princes. Look at verse 23. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. Just like a flower withers, so the princes and judges, the rulers, the governments of the earth, they fade. Sure, there's some people who have done some awesome things. And so at times there are flowers that pop up and those are really good and really beautiful. But do you know what happens to flowers? They fade, they die, they wither. And that's how humanity is. Um, I was listening to this interview from a, a football player who went to, to the University of Tennessee called, uh, named Jeff Hall. He was a place kicker. Uh, on our national championship team. And you've probably never heard of him because you're not from Tennessee and you don't care about that. But in this interview, he was talking about how a mentor of his told him that in life, you might do some, some big things, but you'll always move from a who's who to a who's that to a who cares. A who's who, man, they're a who's who, to a who's that. To a who cares? Let me ask you something. Could you name the 19th president? Somebody in the room probably could because you just memorized those at one point. But the 19th president, Rutherford Hayes. Never heard of him. (laughs) At one time, he was a who's who, he had all of the right connections. If you heard his name, you'd say, who's that? And then they would say, he was the 19th president. And you would say, who cares? <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you know who the governor of Washington was in 1970? Literally, does anybody know? No. Evans. Daniel Evans, Governor Evans. At one time, man. Connected. Who's who? If I came up and asked you, hey, what do you think of Daniel Evans? In 1970, everybody would have known what you meant. Now, these guys do. (laughs) (laughs) Who's that? Oh, he was the governor in 1970 of Washington. Who cares? What was your great-great-grandfather's first name? Flowers fade and all humanity is like grass. He's infinitely superior to all people and he's infinitely superior to every idol that's ever been fashioned. Listen to verse 18 through 20. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. But do you know what happens to those idols? They fall over and they rot just like humans do. But God endures. Now, it's part of human nature to exalt what we think can destroy us, or protect us, or satisfy us. Isn't that true? That the things in, in your mind that can destroy you, you start to think about them more often. You exalt those things. The things that you think can protect you, you start to think about those things, and you lift those things up, you prioritize those things. And the things that you think will satisfy you, the things that you crave, we begin to exalt those things. And in the ancient world, Some of the biggest fears, the things that people thought could destroy them were things like famine, drought, travel, war, infertility. And so what did they do? They thought, okay, there's got to be a force that's controlling this whole thing. There's got to be something that is determining when it rains and whether or not there's vegetation and There's got to be somebody who can protect us when we travel, and there's got to be somebody who can make sure that our wives get pregnant. And so, what did they do? They created a distortion, a superstitious distortion of God, and they invented false gods. The God of Baal was the God of fertility and weather and rain and war. Asherah was the God of fertility and the God of the sea. Dagon was the Philistine god of water and grain. Marduk was the Babylonian god of fertility and vegetation. And before you judge the Israelites for being tempted to follow these little wooden statues or make sacrifices to these false gods, understand why they were doing it. If you're surrounded by a bunch of neighbors and they're all going to sacrifice to this god because that's the only way that we're gonna get crops this year, then there's suddenly a lot of pressure on you. Like, well, wait a minute, if I don't do this, am I, are we gonna have, am I gonna have crops? I, is my family gonna be protected? And that's still how billions of people in the world today live, just like that. Now in the West, we're way too rational and sophisticated for something like that. But it's still in us to exalt the things that we fear, the things that we trust, and the things that we crave. And so we just fashion idols out of different things. Do you want to know what some of the idols in your life might be? Just ask yourself some of these questions. What do you fear? What are you afraid could destroy your life? a health crisis, getting COVID, getting cancer? Now ask yourself this question. If that's your fear, then what are you trusting to protect you? What do you believe could protect you from that? In our culture, it's not (laughs) Baal or Marduk, but it's having the best doctor having the right insurance policies, having the right eating and exercise habits. And isn't it true that there are times where you go to bed at night worried about something and you begin to relieve yourself by telling your mind things. And if a health crisis is one of the things that you're afraid of, you might go to bed at night telling yourself, it's okay, I've got a really great doctor. I've got good connections. Our insurance would cover it. Worst case scenario, at least. And do you see how we're exalting the thing in our mind that we fear and the thing that we think can protect us? If your fear is a financial crisis, losing your savings or your property or your business or the market crashing, then you'll trust in investment accounts and your property and your entrepreneurial prowess and the right people passing the right laws. If you're afraid of a political crisis, Trump being elected for a second term, or the far left gaining control of the government, then you'll trust your party or your news channel to protect you. Listen, as Christians, absolutely vote as your conscience would guide you. But do not vote with the belief that the fate of the world depends on the outcome of this election. If what you fear is a national crisis, military collapse, being overcome by another world power, then what you'll trust is a strong military and conservative policies. If what you fear is an environmental crisis like global warming or natural disasters, then what you will trust is smart energy and liberal policies. If, you, if what you fear is your reputation being ruined, a secret getting out, people finding out the real you, then you'll trust your control and your privacy. If what you fear is failure, not getting into a certain school, not building something worthwhile, not being impressive, then you will trust work and work will become your idol. You'll never be able to log enough hours. What are you afraid could destroy your life? And what are you trusting to protect you? The other question you could ask is, what do you crave? What's the thing that if you had it, your life would be complete. Is it some type of sexual experience? Is this why you're so burdened by pornography? Is this why you're tempted to sleep around? Is this why you're tempted to have an affair? Is there some kind of sexual experience or some kind of romantic experience that if you were able to have that, your life would be complete? Is it fame, being known by the right people, being highly networked, highly connected? having an in with a power circle? Is it success, just making it, building something that proves your worth? Is it power? Is it money? and money in and of itself maybe isn't that significant but what money could give you if you had if we had this if we could ever get to this amount the security that would give us the freedom that would give us do you see how whatever you fear or crave or trust the most can become your god it beca- it can begin to dictate your mood to shape your decisions and dominate your thinking. Do you see how that happens? Isaiah is saying, God is infinitely superior to any and every idol. Nothing you fear can destroy you like God can. And nothing you trust can protect you like God can. And nothing you crave can satisfy you like God can. He is infinitely superior to any and every idol. The whole earth is tiny compared to his magnitude. Look at verses 15 through 17. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough for fuel. If you remember, when we looked at the Song of Songs, we talked about Lebanon's cedars. The reason that that's mentioned in the Bible is because Israel, the area that these people are living in, there's not a lot of forest activity. Even today, you go and it's just like, there's some occasional trees. But Lebanon was a huge forest. It'd be like if you lived in Arizona, you would say, the trees of the Northwest. And he's saying that the greatest forest you can think of is not enough for fuel. Its animals are not enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as empty nothingness. Look at verse 22. God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, I believe the world is round, but not because of this verse. Um, when he says the circle of the earth He's talking about when you look up and you see the dome above you, the highest thing you can see is a mountain, if that's right in front of you, or a star or the moon or the sun. That's the highest thing you can see. And he's saying, God is above that. He's above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 26, look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. He's got all of the stars named and with an assigned seat. How many stars is that? Astronomers estimate there are a septillion stars in the universe 10 to the 24th power. You can even go online and register a star in your name. They're not going to run out. I can't even comprehend that number, and he's taking attendance. The first reason for comfort God is infinite. He is infinite. And He cares about you. He cares about you. He's got the stars numbered. So of course he cares about you. Jesus would say, not a single bird goes to the ground without God knowing about it. So of course he knows about you. He's infinite. And he cares about you. When I was in middle school, I was part of this uh, club at school called First Priority. And basically it was like you got to school really early and they would do a Bible study or whatever. And... um Most of the time they didn't use the Bible, so I don't really actually know what we were even doing there. But um, one time this girl was giving the talk or the devotional or whatever, and she said, um, listen, if God's not answering your prayers right now, it's probably because he's busy. There's a lot of people praying. that is not who our God is. He is infinite, and he cares about you. Do you know why Isaiah told them all this stuff about God? Look at verse 27. Jacob, why do you say in Israel, why do you assert? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God. Why would you say that? Why do you think that God doesn't know what's going on in your life? Why would you think that God doesn't care about your pain? Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Do you know why that's such good news? Because that God is with you. That's why in Isaiah, he can be called Emmanuel, God with us. How do you know? How can you know that God is the infinite God who cares about you? And the answer is to look at Jesus. What has God done to prove that he wants to scoop you up and comfort you? What has he done to prove that? He has come to us. With gentleness like a shepherd, and with power like a king, in the person of his son, Jesus. Have you thought about this? When God looks at the earth and all of its pain, suffering, brokenness, what's his reaction? What's his response? It's not annoyance, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they got themselves into this mess. And it's not dismissiveness like, oh, just, it's not being aloof where he just, oh, I didn't realize that was going on. I'm sorry, we'll send help. When God looks at the pain and the brokenness of the earth, he decides to enter it himself by sending his son Jesus to the earth. When Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth, that was not a promotion. There has never been a greater demotion than that. And yet Jesus does it willingly because he has a heart like a shepherd that's gentle. And when he comes to the earth, he doesn't come to... A family with power and privilege, but instead he comes to a poor working class family in the middle of nowhere. He's not born in New York City or Beijing or Rome or Moscow. He's born in Bethlehem, which, if it wasn't for Jesus being born there, none of us here in Renton would have ever heard of that city. He comes to a podunk town in the middle of nowhere because he's gentle like a shepherd. And then as he grows up, what does he do? Does he demand that, hey, I'm here to save everybody, so you guys ought to wash my feet and pick up after me? No, instead he gives and gives and gives until he gives his life by going to the cross. He goes to the cross so that he can die in your place and mine, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is why Isaiah can say, In verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Why can God say that? Because he intended to come like a shepherd and lay down his life for the sheep. This is why he can say in verse 11, He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. You have a God who is not so far removed from the earth. Just because he's above the circle of the earth does not mean that he's so far removed that he's unaware of the struggles of the common man. God is not in the ivory tower. God is on the streets. He's got boots on the ground. And he cares about you. One of my favorite moments in the Chronicles of Narnia series is in The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in C.S. Lewis's series. And in the story, the main character's name is Diggory. He's a young boy and his mom is very sick. She hasn't been out of bed in weeks. And this boy finds himself in Narnia, away from his mother, but he's worried about his mom the whole time. And then he meets this lion named Aslan, who is very powerful and respected, and everybody is just in awe of Aslan. And Aslan has something that he wants Diggory to do. But Dickory is like, I want to be back with my mom. What about my mom? And so here's what happens. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face, that means yellowish-orange, the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with... The lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself, And if you would lift your eyes up and see Jesus' face, what you would see is that his tears over your circumstances are greater even than yours. But Jesus comes with gentleness like a shepherd to die on the cross and forgive us of our sins, but he does not stay dead. Instead, he is raised from the dead in power like a king, and he ascends to be with his father, and he promises someday to return and remake all things. This is why in Isaiah 40, verses three through five, it says, a voice of one crying out. This is John the Baptist fulfilled this in the gospels. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The reason that he's talking about these valleys being lifted up and the uneven grounds being made level and the mountains being, tunnels being dug through them is because when a king would come to town, you would build a new highway, you would You would change the way that the area was, and that would raise the the property value of all the area. There's a healing influence that happens when the king comes, and the same is true for Jesus. When Jesus returns, all things will be made right. All things will be made new. There will be a healing influence to his leadership. Isn't it true that when, ex- when when authority is exercised rightly, when there's a good leader on the team or in your family or in your company or on the sports team, when there's a good leader, the community as a whole flourishes, right? In fact, that's one way you could evaluate your leadership if you find yourself in a leadership position. Is my team, is my company, is my community flourishing as a result of my leadership? When Jesus returns, the whole earth will be healed. The whole earth will flourish when Jesus returns because he comes with power like a king. So as we close today, I've got two two things that you could do in response to this. The first is to lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. This week, uh, Pastor Barry and I were talking with this woman and just ministering to her. And Pastor Barry's encouragement to her was to memorize Isaiah 40, verse 31. I think that would be a great thing for you to do. It's easy to become so burdened by life and looking at all of my problems that I've got my head down. And the encouragement from Isaiah 40 is lift your eyes, lift your eyes. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Verse 29, listen to this. This is for you. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Lift your eyes this morning. Trust in the Lord. He will renew your spirit. That doesn't mean your problems will go away. But you will soar with him above the problems. This is why Colossians 3 says, hey, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he returns, you'll also appear with him in glory. So lift your eyes. And here's the second thing. Lift your voice. Lift your voice. What do I mean by that? 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. So don't let the anxieties and the fears and the pressures and the pains of life stay up here or in here, but lift your voice to the Lord. Cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. As we close today, there's going to be a response team up here. If you're in the room, if you're online, you can type it into the comment section, your prayer requests there's going to be a response team. If you just need to lift your voice and pray with someone, they would love to do that with you. If you need to fill out one of the digital connect cards and let us know your prayer request so that somebody else can be praying with you, lift your voice. And you can lift your voice and sing and honor the one who is to be feared and trusted and desired above all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being a God who is not just strong and powerful, but is also gentle and kind. Father, I ask right now that your spirit would be active. If there are people listening in this room or online who do not know you, would you introduce yourself? If there are people struggling to believe this morning, would you help their faith? there are people hurting. God, would you prove to be the God of all comfort? Would you comfort them so that they may comfort others? God, would you be honored in how we live as a result of your word? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you come if you need to pray and would you sing?